0: to love that makes me see On behalf of Calvary Bible Church of Palisidro, welcome to the Bible teaching ministry of our pastor and teacher, Jim Jarrett. Here's Pastor Jim with today's study designed to help us grow in the Word.
1: Ephesians chapter 4, I'll be reading verses 17 through 24. If you'll follow along now as I begin reading, Ephesians cha- in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 17 where the apostle writes, Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity." May the Lord bless this reading of his word and our time together in it, you may Well, let's get into our study this morning. We are in the practical section of Ephesians where Paul instructs us how, in light of all the rich theologies in chapters 1 to 3, we're to live out the Christian life. And after an introductory statement in chapter 4, verses 1 and 2, Paul began with living out the Christian life within the church in verses 3 to 16. And then beginning in chapter 4, verse 17, through chapter 5, verse 21, Paul now turns to how we are to live out the Christian life in our personal lives, not only in our relation to fellow believers, but more specifically to the world around us. You know, we are called to live a lifestyle that is distinctly different from the world and different from our pre-Christian past. And last Sunday morning, of course, we look at verses 17 to 19, where Paul began by first exhorting us how we should not live. He said in verse 17, Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. So Paul says, uh, here's a way you shouldn't live. You must no longer live the way you used to live as an unconverted Gentile. You need to abandon that lifestyle. And then in the final statement of verse 17 through verse 19, Paul described the way uh, his readers once lived as unbelievers, the way their peers still lived, and the way that they must no longer live. And he said in verse 17, they must no longer walk or live in the futility of their minds. In other words, uh, uh, completely unable in their thinking to apprehend spiritual truth. And then Paul uh, went on to describe the terrible condition of Gentiles apart from Christ. He said in verse 18, they're darkened in their understanding. And this is the continuing state of all men apart from Christ. They are spiritually and morally darkened. They are incapable of grasping the truth of God and His gospel. They are also, Paul said, alienated from the very life of God. Unbelievers are spiritually dead in trespasses and trespasses in sin. They have no relationship whatsoever with the living God. In fact, they are under God's wrath, accumulating for themselves more and more wrath for the day of judgment. And Paul said the reason for this is because of the ignorance that is in them. And this ignorance of God is not because of a lack of education or opportunity. It's the willful choice of men and women. They, they don't want to know God because they don't want to be accountable to Him because they don't want to obey Him. And so they willfully reject his revelation, and this Paul says in verse 18, is due to their hardness of heart. And hardness of heart describes a rigid, unyielding, stubborn, willful resistance to the truth of the Gospel and the truths of God's Word because of their rebellion against God. And as a result, their hearts become hard. And the more people resist and the more they reject, the harder their hearts become. And so they are darkened and, and spiritually blind. And in verse 19, Paul said that as a result of this hardness of heart, they've become callous. You know, they have no moral sensitivity. They're unable to feel shame, to blush. They've lost the emotional or spiritual capacity to feel embarrassed for their sinful conduct. Those who are spiritually blind and morally callous lose any sensitivity to what is right or wrong. Consequently, Paul says in verse 19, they have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. You see, a continually hardened heart becomes more and more insensitive so that more and more sin is needed to gratify the flesh because what was once new and exciting and pleasurable becomes boring, old hat, unfulfilling, And so they indulge themselves in every kind of impurity with a continual lust for more and more. And the lives of Paul's readers in the Ephesian church at one time matched this dark description. But now, in sharp contrast to the mindset and lifestyle of of the unbelieving Gentiles all around them, In verses 20-24, to Paul reminds his readers that they had learned a far different way. And he exhorts them to live according to what they had been taught. And in verse 20, Paul characteristically marks this contrast with the word but. Look at verse 20, he says, but, in contrast to that, he says, that is not the way that you learned Christ. Paul has described the other Gentiles. Uh, he's now describing the Christian. And so, what does he tell us about him? Well, obviously, in the first place, he tells us that the Christian is someone who, by definition, has been separated from and taken out of that evil world. You know, that is not the way you learn Christ. You've been taken out of that evil world. You know, the, the other Gentiles, that, that is how they're living. But that is not you. There's been a separation. The Christian has been taken out of that. He's been put into another realm. He was once like all the others, but he's no longer like them. You see, becoming a Christian is is the most profound, most radical change in the world. And that is why Christ died. He died on the cross so that He might deliver His people from this present evil world. He, it, it's as if He takes hold of us and, and, and pulls us out of it. I mean, Paul wrote to the Colossians, He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son. You see, when you become a Christian, you are brought into an entirely new realm. You belong to a new kingdom. You're no longer in the kingdom of Satan. You belong to the kingdom of God and of Christ. You're no longer in the kingdom of darkness, but you're in the kingdom of light. I mean, if you're truly Christ, you're going to have a new nature. A new beginning, a new life, a new set of loyalties, a new agenda, new loves, new desires. Because you belong to a different kingdom and a different king. You're not simply improved a little bit just where you are. No, that is not the purpose of Christianity. It never does that. It's something new and it's going to end in a new heaven and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. One man said the business of Christianity is not to improve the world. No, it is to take men out of the world, to save them from it, and to form this new realm, this new kingdom, and this new humanity. That's exactly right. So Paul says to his readers, that is not the way you learned Christ. You know, you, you have not learned Christ in such a way that allows you to say, yes, well, yeah, I believe in Christ, uh, but I'm still living the way I did before. No, that's impossible. I mean, Paul is in essence saying to them, it's unthinkable that you should live as the unbelievers do. Your, your whole life and behavior, your, your attitude and conduct should convey something which is completely and wonderfully different. I mean, it should not be difficult for people to know that we are Christians. But I wonder whether it is. I wonder whether sometimes people are surprised when they're told that we're Christians. I mean, one of the great tragedies of the age we live in is that the distinct difference between the church and the world has become so obscured and so uncertain that you really can't tell them apart. In fact, Tozer said that the Holy Spirit could depart from most churches and they would never know that he was gone. So much of the church can't be uh, distinguished from the world. And that should not be the case. Because the, the world views and lifestyles of unbelievers are utterly and diametrically opposed to the new life that believers have in Christ. James said, friendship with the world is enmity with God. And the person who makes a profession of Christ but makes no effort to break with his worldly and sinful habits, has reason to doubt his salvation. Because John said, whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments, is a liar. And the truth is not in him. And he said a little later in that same chapter, and if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. You see, the ways of God and the ways of the world are are not compatible, not at all. And so this idea promoted by some evangelicals who claim to believe in the Bible and its message that Christians may continue to live like they always live without any change in their thinking and behavior as long as they have received Jesus, whatever that means, is absolutely, utterly, and entirely false. One man said the teaching that a Christian does not have to give up anything or change anything when he becomes a Christian is nothing less than diabolical. And the point is that the true Christian, because of what has happened to him, because of the regenerating work of the Spirit, because he has been made a new creation in Christ, is of absolute necessity, a different man. And that difference should be seen in the way a man or a woman lives the whole of their life. The whole of their life. And not only does the the true Christian know that that he's different, listen, the non-Christian world knows it too. The Christian and the non-Christian are aware of a difference between themselves. And the fact is, the unbeliever expects the Christian to be different. And he doesn't have much, if any, respect for the kind of Christian who is not different. And so if you're out doing all the things that they do with them when you should be doing other things, why in the world would they ever think that you were a Christian or have anything of any value to offer them? I mean, sin had alienated Paul's readers from from the life of God, but by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. They had received life, new life, eternal life. They became new creations in Christ, and now they were to live holy lives. Again, looking back at the verse, Paul says, but that is not the way you learned Christ. And of course, the way, that is not the way. The way refers to the way of unbelievers that he's just described. Paul says that, that is not the way you learned Christ. Now notice Paul does not say you learned about Christ. He says, but you learned Christ. And it can be translated literally as you did not learn Christ that way. Now, this is an unusual phrase that doesn't occur anywhere else in the Bible. And it's unusual because a person normally learns uh, a content. You know, the law, statutes, ordinances, etc. Or a a person learns a certain pattern of behavior, you know, to obey God, to to do good, etc. But not a person. Yet the idea here is that of learning a person rather than a mere fact or doctrine. So what does Paul mean? What does this mean? You know, you learned Christ. What does that mean? Well, Paul is using relational language. You see, becoming a Christian is not merely learning about Jesus. You can know... uh, a book full of information about Jesus sitting here this morning and be as lost as lost can be. Becoming a Christian is not merely learning about Jesus. I mean, certainly it includes that. But that's not what Paul is talking about here. Learning Christ... Refers to more than merely acquiring intellectual information and instruction about him. Christianity is a relationship with Christ. When you become a Christian, you don't merely learn about Jesus or the teaching of Jesus. No, you come to know him. Know him. You know, that's a term of intimacy. You know, Jesus prayed in John 17:3. Now this is eternal life that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I mean, salvation is knowing God the Father and, and God the Son. I mean, the Christian life begins when you receive eternal life from God through faith in Jesus Christ. And at that moment, you come to know Christ as a living person. You have a personal relationship with Him. He's not merely a figure in history that you have learned about. No, you have a personal relationship with him. We learn Christ when we come to know him, love him, serve him, worship him, and live in all things to please him. I mean, the changed life begins when you learn Christ. And this learning of Christ should produce a holy life. In fact, it will. Because we cannot learn Christ and live a life that contradicts His life on earth. and So the the question this morning is, have you? Have you? Have you come to know Jesus Christ? And if you haven't come to know Jesus Christ in that way, in a personal, intimate way. If all you've ever done was learn about Him and so you've cleaned up your life, you're living a moral life with knowledge about Jesus, so you're a religious moralist, if that's the case, you're as lost as lost can be. Among the hardest to reach with the Gospel because you think you're okay. But if you haven't come to know Christ in a personal, intimate way, Then you can't live this new life. It's not possible. Because it begins with conversion to Christ, it begins with being regenerated, being born again. Christianity is not about being moral, you know, rule keeping, church attendance, having warm feelings at a religious event, you know, merely believing in a God, doing good things, and knowing facts about Christ. It's about knowing Christ. Knowing Him. Having a personal, intimate relationship with Him. And so your life is being shaped and fashioned by Him and by His Word. You're going to have a desire for His Word and to live according to His Word. Not just in the little areas you pick and choose. But in all of life, you're going to seek to live according to God's Word and His will. I read about a little girl who (laughs) was getting a a swine flu shot and the nurse asked her, well, which arm do you want it in, sweetie? And the little girl said, in mama's arm. (laughs) Well, mama cannot take your shot. And mama or daddy cannot believe for you and neither can anyone else. Knowing Christ is having a personal relationship with Him. And so again, the question is, have you learned Christ? Do you know Him personally? But that is not the way you learned Christ, and Paul now adds in verse 21, assuming that you have heard about Him. The word assuming does not imply in any way doubt or uncertainty that his readers had heard about Christ and and were taught in him. Rather, it implies Paul's confident assumption. And so it could be translated, surely you have heard as it is in the NIV or since you have heard as it is in another translation. And actually the phrase, you have heard about him, should be translated as you heard him because the word about is not in the original language. And so Paul is saying, I know you have heard him. So what does that mean? Well, it could not refer to hearing Jesus' physical voice on earth because there's no way uh, that could have been true of all the believers in Ephesus and the surrounding area to whom Paul was writing. Then what does it mean? What does it refer to? Simply this, that through the voice of their Christian teachers, the Ephesians had heard Christ's voice. They heard Christ, first of all, through Paul's preaching of the gospel. And then they heard Christ through the preaching and teaching of the apostles about the person and work of Christ and about the nature of the Christian life, which should result from trusting in Jesus as Lord and Savior. And as Paul said to the Thessalonians in 1 Thessalonians 4, 1 and 2, Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God just as you are doing, that you do so more and more for you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. So this teaches us that when any time true ministers of the gospel preach God's Word. Christ is speaking through them. And so that those listening, don't, they're not hearing just a man. Christ Himself is speaking to us through His Word, through that vessel. In other words, when you go to a church and hear God's Word expounded by a man who has been gifted by God to do that, you're actually going to be taught by Christ who is God. And this is exactly how you should view the expounded word. I mean, this is God's word to you. So these aren't merely uh, a pastor's suggestions that you can check out if you so desire. No, this is God's word to you. And hearing Christ happens every time we hear the preaching of the word. It also happens when we read and study and meditate on the Word. We are hearing Christ through His Word. Christ is involved in every biblical transmission of Scripture to His people. As one man said, Christ Himself is the Christian's teacher, even if the teaching is given through the lips of His followers. To receive the teaching is, in the truest sense, to hear Him. Jesus' sheep hear his voice. When true preaching takes place, Jesus is invisibly in the pulpit and walking the aisles, personally teaching his own. Paul says, I know you have heard him. And with regard to this hearing, one man said that if one truly hears Christ and his gospel become the chief things in his life. He is mastered by them. Paul says you learned Christ, you heard him, and now he says you were taught in him. You were taught in him. So what is the context of of Christian learning? It is in Christ. It is in Christ. When Paul says we are taught in Him, this refers to our union with Christ, which happens at salvation. 1 Corinthians 12.13 says that we were all baptized by one Spirit into one body. So as believers, we are the body of Christ. We are forever connected with Him in union with Him. And throughout Ephesians, Paul says has mentioned this reality many times, you know, saying that believers are the faithful in Christ. We have every spiritual blessing in Christ. We were chosen in Him before the foundation of the world. God has given us His grace in the one He loves. In Him we have redemption through His blood and the forgiveness of sins. He made known to us the mystery of His will which He set forth in Christ. In Him we have obtained an inheritance. In Him we were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. The immeasurable greatness of God's surpassing power towards us was revealed in Christ when He raised Him from the dead. I mean, in Christ we have so many wonderful blessings. And it is within this dynamic union with Christ that He teaches and changes us day by day by day. And so to be taught in Him means to be taught in the realm of our new position in Christ. I mean, before we were outside of Christ, dead in our trespasses and sins, walking in the futility of our minds, darkened in our understanding, spiritually blind, willfully ignorant, callous, not understanding the things of God. But now, because of God's great mercy and kindness toward us, we know Christ. And we are in Christ. And we are taught in Him, which will result in a changed life and holy living. Because again, we cannot have a personal, intimate knowledge of Christ, be in Christ, being taught in Him, and then continue to live the same old sinful life. It's absolutely impossible. A Christian is going to live a different life, a life as different as light is from darkness. So Paul says, you were taught in Him, and then he says, as the truth is in Jesus. The phrase, as the truth is in Jesus, qualifies the preceding comments about learning Christ, hearing Him, and being taught in Him. I mean, coming to Christ and and learning Him is coming to the truth. I mean, earlier, Paul called the gospel the word of truth, which is really another way of of saying coming to Christ. Because the truth is not just a set of, of, of propositions. The truth is a person. The truth is a person. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. He is the embodiment of the truth. The the truth of salvation is only found in Jesus Christ. I mean, in Him, we learn the truth about who we are. The truth about sin and righteousness and the truth about God's purpose for why we are even here on this earth. We learn the truth about how to love God and to love one another. We learn the truth about the coming judgment and about heaven and about hell. I mean, all of the truth we need for life and godliness is centered in the person of Jesus Christ. Look, there are many different ways that claim to be the true and and the only way to God. However, Christ is the truth. Christ is the only way to a relationship with God. Jesus said, no one comes to the Father, what? Except through me. Paul says we are taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. Now this is interesting because Paul uh, most often refers to Jesus as Christ or Jesus. Christ Jesus, or Lord Jesus, or the Messiah Jesus. But here in verse 21 is the only time in Ephesians that he uses the name Jesus by itself. It wasn't a mistake. It, it, no doubt, uh, it was no doubt deliberate on Paul's part, and the change is, is uh, no doubt more than merely stylistic. I mean, why didn't Paul say just as the truth is in Christ or in Christ Jesus? Why did he just use the name Jesus? Because the name Jesus focuses on the historical person who was born of the Virgin Mary, who worked as a carpenter, and who walked throughout the land of Israel preaching the gospel, teaching the people, and healing the sick, who was crucified raised bodily from the dead, seen by many of his disciples after the resurrection, and ascended bodily into heaven. All of these historic facts lie behind the name Jesus. And As one commentator said, this is important because the Christian is not saved by a philosophy of redemption. He is saved by that historic person, Jesus of Nazareth, son of God. And as he goes on to point out, all of the world's major religions are built around teachings and ideas. But in sharp contrast, the truth of the gospel is rooted in history. The Christian message is the proclamation of certain facts that happened in history in the person of Jesus. If the gospel accounts are fictional stories, then there is no salvation in Jesus. If the historic person Jesus did not die on the cross and rise bodily from the dead, as testified by many reliable eyewitnesses, then we are still in our sin. You see, everything in the Christian faith rests on the truth of the historical person of Jesus who lived, died, was buried, and rose from the dead in human history. And you find him, and you find the truth. In Christ Jesus are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. All truth is in Jesus. And there is no truth apart from him, for everything is in him, and he alone is the truth. And you find him, you find not only the truth, but you also find life eternal. And Paul's point is that the truth can only be found in Jesus, in the knowledge and experience of and in relationship to so Paul says, you learned Christ, you heard Him, you were taught in Him as the truth is in Jesus. And so now the question is, well, how will learning Christ show itself in our lives? Or how are Christians to live distinctive and God-like lives in a fallen world? Well, in verses 22 to 24, Paul gives us the distinguishing characteristics of the life that has learned Christ, and first of all, learning Christ means a putting off. Look at verse twenty-two. Paul says, "To put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires." The word translated here as "put off" it means to take off to lay aside, to strip off like you would a, a, a garment or you know, a piece of clothing. And here Paul says to put off your old self. Some translations say put off the old man. Same thing. Now that's interesting. Because in Romans chapter 6, verse 6, Paul says that our old self was crucified with Christ. In other words, the old man is dead. He he died with Christ. Yet here in Ephesians, Paul is telling us to put off our old self or, or the old man. So how do we explain that? And how can you put off the old man if the old man is already dead? You know, what's that all about? Well, it's really quite simple. In Romans 6.6, 6, Paul is stating something which is a fact. It is a description of what is true of us in our relationship to God. In a spiritual sense, at conversion, the old man died. He was crucified and died with Christ. But that's not all. The old man died, being crucified with Christ, but we were born again as new creations in Christ, and spiritually speaking, we were raised with Him to walk in newness of life. That's what happened at conversion. And the parallel text in Colossians 3, 8 to 10, helps us here. And there Paul said, But now you must put them all away anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. And Paul's command in those verses in Colossians to put away particular sins is based on the fact that the old self had already been removed and the new self had already been put on indicating what the colossians did at the time of their conversion so there's no contradiction between romans 6 6 and ephesians four twenty two. romans 6 states the old man died crucified with christ died with Christ, but we were born again as a new creation in Christ. That's a fact. It happened at conversion. And now as new creations in Christ, because Paul is speaking to regenerate, born-again people, Paul is calling us here in Ephesians 4.22 to be what we are. To be what we are. Put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life. Paul is not telling the Ephesians or us to keep putting to death the old man that is already dead. What he is saying is to have nothing to do with the old man. In other words, don't go on doing the things that you used to do because the old person that you were, that old self, is dead, crucified with Christ. So stop stop doing what you were accustomed to doing as an unbeliever. Stop living the way you did before. That's not who you are. Be what you are. Realize whose you are and what you are and be that. One man used a a, a helpful illustration here. And, you know, he spoke about the fact that when Abraham Lincoln, President Lincoln, freed the slaves, they were officially freed from slavery. But some of them went on living as if they were still slaves. But the president's proclamation gave them legal standing as free citizens. They were no longer slaves, but were completely free. But out of habit and practice and custom, many of these poor people still went on living as if they were slaves. And so they needed to live in accordance with who they now were. And so the thing to say to them was, put off the slavery. You're no longer a slave. You you are free people. Live as someone who is free. Stop living as a slave. Stop behaving as a slave. You're free, so be what you are. And that's exactly what the Apostle Paul is saying here. Be what you are in Christ. Live that way. However, in saying that, even though in our relationship to God it is true to say that the old man is dead, uh, from a practical standpoint, the influences of the old life, you know, the old self, the, the old habits, the sinful lifestyle and practices, the old patterns of, of thought, word and deed, I mean, all the things that belong to our, our former manner of life which are corrupt through deceitful desires, they have to be continually put off so that we don't drift back into that old kind of life, so that we don't drift back into those old sinful habits. Does that make sense? And of course, this process is never easy. And it's never easy because uh, the, the habits and, and patterns of the old self were, were a natural, you know, innate part of our old way of living and thinking. So the process is never easy. There's a a spiritual battle going on all the time. But the good news is that as believers, our present lives are not being hopelessly corrupted by the deceitful patterns of our past lives. I mean, though in our lives prior to Christ, we were powerless to resist the work of Satan in us, now in Christ, We no longer have to yield to the patterns of the life we once lived. Why? Because of the indwelling Spirit. Because the same power that raised Christ from the dead is at work in us. I mean, in our old nature, we were unable not to sin. But as new creatures justified by Christ Jesus and indwelt by Him, we are able now not to sin. That doesn't mean we're going to live perfectly before Christ comes. But because of the indwelling presence of Christ now in us by His Spirit, we're not powerless before temptation. No, not at all. In Christ, we are able to resist the devil and to resist temptation. We can say no to sin. And so we can obey Paul's instruction to put off the sinful practices of the, uh, as the Holy Spirit reveals them to us. But hey, it's a lifelong process. It's a lifelong process. Paul's exhortations to the believers at Ephesus remind us of this. You know, that we're not alone in our struggle with sin. There is a battle every day between the Spirit and the flesh. And this battle with sin is something every believer deals with. Even the Apostle Paul. Read about his struggle with sin in Romans chapter 7. It's a very real issue. I mean, Christians through the ages have, have wrestled for purity and righteousness. And so we're not strange or unique uh, when we do the same. As one man said, the Christian life is a battle. The residue of the old nature persists, even though that nature is dead. The old man's pattern of thought, word, and deed have placed deep ruts in our lives. Until we are with the Lord, we will struggle with aspects of our fallen nature. Those who do not know this are either living according to some formula of holiness that precludes serious self-examination, or are unwilling to seek with real passion and zeal to live for the Savior. Or perhaps they are too terrified of consequences to reveal to others or themselves the true struggles within their souls. No one, he said, who struggles against sin is unique or strange or alone. You know, we do not, and it is a heretical teaching, we do not uh, and cannot reach a state of sinlessness in this life. And if anybody ever tells you that you can, you can tell them they're simply a liar. John said, he who says he has no sin, what? Makes God a liar. We all have sin. And to think otherwise is so proud and arrogant, it and, and it makes someone extremely vulnerable because we all sin. However, because of what has taken place within us and what has happened to us, you know, we've been born again, we're new creations in Christ. You know, we can put off every sinful thing that was part of our former life so that we no longer live the way we did before, because that's not who we are. We're to be what we already are in Christ. We are new creations, And so we need to live as the new creations that we are in Christ, and we can. We can do that. Because what God calls us to do, His Spirit enables and empowers us to do. You see, it's not what we were that matters, but what we are. Well, we are in Christ. That's what matters. That old person is dead. doesn't matter what we were. Only what we are in Christ. And because of what we are in Christ, we're to live accordingly. And those who have learned Christ live differently, first of all, which first of all means putting off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life. But secondly, it means, look at verse 23, to be renewed in the spirit of your minds. And so, in contrast to the futile, darkened, spiritually blind mind of the unbeliever, the Christian is renewed in the spirit of his mind. And you'll notice Paul says we are to be renewed in the spirit of our minds. I mean, this what, what does that mean? Well, it doesn't refer to the Holy Spirit. What does it mean? Well, this refers to the principle that regulates or controls the mind. In other words, just as the the spirit of the world is the principle that controls the world or makes it what it is, the spirit of the mind is not just mental ability, but but the power that controls and directs the abilities. So Paul means that our entire way of thinking and and what controls our thinking uh, needs renewal, needs renewing. And when a person becomes a Christian, it's not that God gives us a new brain. Sometimes we wish that he would, but it's not that God gives us a new brain. No, he renews the mind. You know, he gives it a completely new spiritual and moral capability, a capability that the most brilliant and educated mind apart from Christ can never have or never achieve. You know, we have a new center of gravity in our thinking. It's God and His glory. That's what dominates us. God and His glory. No longer self, but God and His glory. You know, we we are now living for Him. We have a new resolve to seek first the kingdom of God and, and His righteousness. We have a desire to follow Him and obey Him. And this phrase, be renewed, is in the present tense which tells us that this renewal is an ongoing process that God performs in us. But it's not something that happens once and for all. It's something that that continues. This renewal is the continual work of the Spirit in the believer's life. So this is something, uh, God does this work in us, but this does not remove our responsibility to pursue this renewal. Yes, God is doing it in us, but we're also to pursue it. I mean, Paul said to the Romans in Romans chapter 12, verse 2, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by what? The renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God and what is good and acceptable and perfect. So, though God is, is, God is working in us to renew our minds, we are also responsible to pursue the renewing of our minds. So, how do we do that? How do we go about seeking to renew our minds? Well, the primary means of ongoing transformation and renewal of our minds is the Word of God and prayer. And let's deal with prayer first. We should never attempt to read Scripture without praying, asking God to bless them, to open them up to us, and to enlighten us by by the Holy Spirit. You know, to give us eyes to see, to help us understand what we read. And what a difference prayer makes. And of course, certainly, we're we're to pray about every aspect of our lives. And so there's prayer. But then, we need the life-giving Word of God every single day. Not merely to check off the box. Not merely to take in more information. But so that we can experience its renewing influence. You know, when you're, you're flying uh, in a plane, flying cross country, or, you know, flying anywhere, I suppose, you know, you can, uh, and you happen to look down onto a desert landscape, and you see a line of, of green trees, uh, you know something about that. You know that there's water there. And the same is true for us. I mean, God's Word is the living stream that renews our minds and hearts for eternal life. For the Word of God is living and active. You know, the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. We must renew our minds, wash them, cleanse them with, with the Word of God and, and meditate on that which is good, right, and true in order that we might live this new life. There needs to be this continual renewing of the mind. God does this, but we are also to pursue it. You know, when a person wants to learn a foreign language, what's the most effective way for them to do so? I mean, it's to enter into that culture and, and language, right, and, just, and to just become saturated with it. And that's how our children learn to talk and, and to think as we do. And so if we desire to have our minds renewed, then we must find God's thoughts and then immerse ourselves in them. And His thoughts have been incarnated in Christ, the living Word, and then recorded in the Bible, His inspired written Word. And this is where many Christians fail. They spend more time in front of their computer screens, their smartphone, their large screen TV, and in books than they do in their Bibles. And they are the worst, and the church is the worst for it. And never has there been a time in history when we have had so much uh, information, so many study Bibles, so much information about the Bible at our fingertips, but yet there be so much biblical illiteracy. It's one of the great scourges of the church today. It's why false teaching flourishes, because people are illiterate when it comes to the Scriptures. So we need to spend more time in the Word of God, and not so much time in front of other screens and other things. And not only that, listen, today most of the stations and publications, so-called Christian stations and publications, contain so much that is secular thinking just sprinkled with a little bit of spiritual jargon. We will only develop a worldview by meditating on and obeying God's word. And don't forget the obeying part. Meditating and obeying. Because if we just hear and don't do, well, what does James say? Well, we're just deceiving ourselves. And there are a lot of people deceived in the church. Because they come in here and they never do. And they never do. And they never do. And so we need to be saturated with God's Word. If we want to think God's thoughts after Him, we're going to find them only in His Word, and so we need to be saturated with His Word so that we begin to reflect His ways, His values, His goals, His methods. I mean, this is the renewing of the mind which Paul is calling for here. Those who have learned Christ live differently, which means putting off the old self, being renewed in the spirit of your mind. And thirdly, Paul says, look at verse 24, it means to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. The word translated here as put on means to just that, put on. (laughs) To clothe oneself. It was normally used for one's literal clothing. Of course, it's used figuratively here. And the word new, put on the new self. The word new doesn't mean renovated. It means entirely new, new in species, new, new in character. And at the old convert or at conversion, the old self, the old man died, was crucified with Christ. But we were born again as new creations in Christ. Raised with Him to walk in newness of life, a completely new life that didn't exist before, with new longings, new aspirations, new desires, new loves, new passions. I mean, it affects our whole personality and our whole being. I mean, you are a new creation in Christ. That's a fact. That happened the moment you believed. And Paul said, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. So at the point of conversion, uh, we put on the new man once and for all. We are new creations in Christ. But, Paul tells us here to put on the new man. How can we put on the new man if we already put the new man on at conversion? What does this mean? Well, when Paul told us to put off the old man in verse 20, he meant stop being what you are not. Right? Well, putting on the new man is the opposite of this. It means to be what you are. In verse 24, Paul is calling us to be what we are. He's exhorting us to live in a manner that's consistent with the new creation that we are in Christ. We're a new person. That fact was settled at conversion, and so now we just need to make sure that we are putting on or living out the lifestyle of someone who belongs to Christ. Because our new nature includes a different mindset and, and lifestyle. And we need to live accordingly. In Philippians 3, verses twelve or Philippians two, excuse me, verses twelve and thirteen, Paul said, Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Why? For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. In other words, it is because of what God has done in us that we're able to do it. And we must do it because God has done it in us. And so because He has worked it in us, we're to work it out, we're to live it out. So there's no contradiction. It's because you're a new man, you know, it's because you and I are new creations in Christ that we are able now to put on the new man, that we are able to live the Christian life. And Paul is saying, just be what you are. You're a new creation in Christ. I want you to be that in every aspect of your life, in all of your conduct, in all of your behavior, in all that you think and say and do. And that's exactly the meaning of Paul's exhortation here in verse 24. He says, put on the new self, created after the likeness of God, in true righteousness and holiness. Notice the word created. The new man is not a new, improved version of the old, but a newly created one by God. Because God puts something into us that was not there before. And that is what it means to become a Christian. And if you're not clear about this, uh, your idea of Christianity is entirely wrong. The Christian is not the old man improved. The Christian is not a man who's trying to be better than he once was. Not at all. That's a moralist. Moralism doesn't say. Christians are not people who merely try to live a little better than the majority depicted in the news. Just, you know, moral, decent folks. And certainly we're that. But we are infinitely more than that. Because God has put something of Himself within us. The very life of God is in us. As the Apostle Peter said, we are partakers of the divine nature. You see, one thing that we, we, we somehow miss in conversion or forget about is that at conversion we are born again. Born again. It's something the Holy Spirit does. You're born again. You're regenerated. And so merely praying a prayer may or may not mean a thing. Because you can pray a prayer but not be regenerated. Conversion is being regenerated, it's being born again. A new principle uh, of life is put into us by God through the Spirit. We have a a new disposition. I mean, something absolutely new is created. That's, That's the whole meaning of regeneration, of being born again. It's brand new. And that is what Jesus was telling Nicodemus. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the spirit is spirit. And here we see the contrast. The the Christian is entirely different. He is absolutely new. He is a new creation. And listen, Paul has already been teaching this uh, in Ephesians. I mean, for example, he said back in chapter 2, verse 10, for we are his workmanship, what? Created in Christ Jesus, for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. We're to live the life of the new people that we are in Christ Jesus. A life that absolutely delights in God's truth and delights in holy living. A life that is characterized by loving God with all of our hearts, loving our neighbors as ourselves, loving one another in the church as Christ loved us. It's knowing God, loving Him, serving Him, worshiping Him, seeking to glorify Him in all that we say and do. I mean, these are the realities of the Christian life. This is what we are. And Paul describes this new self in two ways. Notice verse 24. He says, to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. First, the new self is created after the likeness of God, or we could say in the image of God. You know, God does the creating. That's what the rebirth is. God does the creating, and He he creates according to His own image. Believers have been made new in God's likeness. We don't become God, but we do become His image bearers. And then we are, are called to reflect that glorious image in our lives. Now, second Paul says that the new self is created in true righteousness and holiness, which, uh, as you know, are aspects of God's character. I mean, God is righteous. That is, he's, he's true to himself, and he never acts or thinks contrary to his perfect nature. He is also holy. In fact, according to Isaiah 6:3, he is thrice holy. It speaks of his otherness, his uniqueness, his purity. In mean, righteousness and holiness are uh, are, are somewhat similar, but, but righteousness refers to living according to God's standards, whereas holiness has the nuance of, of essential purity, of set apartness. And this is what God intends for us. This is what the human race lost by the fall, but which Christ came to restore the very image of God in us. And so Christians are, are new creations because they're reborn. Not remodeled, they're reborn. Created in Christ for this, to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. And so that of necessity means we cannot live the life we used to live. Our life should be distinctly different from that and from that of the world. And so Paul instructs us to live in accordance with the new self which was created by God to display the type of righteousness and holiness that belongs to him. I mean, this is so important. I mean, Paul understood the need for the Ephesians to be reminded of what the gospel had made them, of of who they are in Christ. Because living in a fallen world and and surrounded by a constant atmosphere of, of ungodliness can dull our sense of our new identity in Christ. And this is why, as one man said, one of the principal emphases in a pastor's preaching ministry will be recurring reminders to his hearers of the gospel-created new identity that is the possession of every Christian by God's grace in Christ. Loss of identity is a hugely dispiriting and debilitating crisis in a person's life. Therefore, constant exposure to the truth as it is in Jesus is imperative for healthy, God-honoring living. Amen. You know, we don't all have dramatic conversions as the Apostle Paul did. I mean, many of us that were raised in Christians home, or Christian homes may not uh, know exactly when it was we came to faith in Christ. But no matter what our experience of conversion, this we must absolutely know, that God in His grace has changed our hearts And if your heart is still the same, if you're still living even a moralistic life, but a moral life, but you're still self-centered and selfish, life revolves all around you and your wants and your needs, and the the things of God are not a priority in your life, you really don't have any desire for God, but you know that that you should show up at church, then let me tell you something. uh, Your heart has not been changed. You are not a believer in Christ. Because when someone is reborn, created anew, a new creation in Christ, they will know that God has changed their heart. Now outwardly it may take them a while to to get rid of all the old habits. But they, they will know, and others around them will know, there has been a definite change in their heart. You know, formerly we didn't know Christ. Even if we maintained an outward veneer of virtue and religiosity, I mean, we were living for self. We were being corrupted by the evil desires of sin that that deceived us into thinking that, that they would bring fulfillment. But the person we used to be, that old, rebellious, enslaved unbelieving self, that person died. Thank God that person died. And by the grace and mercy of God, we are new creations in Christ, created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. And so in light of that, our lives must be radically different. we should be able to see and the world should be able to see a distinct difference in our lives. I mean, there should be a distinct difference between the old person that we were and the new person that we now are. And we're to live in a way that is consistent with that newness. But at the same time, because we are not perfected and will not be in this life, we must continually put off the old self the old habits and practices associated with our former life. We must continue, pursue continually being renewed in the spirits of our mind, and we must continually put on the new self. In other words, live out who we are in Christ in righteousness and holiness. And how do we do this? Well, it involves the Word of God and prayer. It's the Word of God that tells us how we're supposed to live. We need to pray always and without ceasing. Uh, It also involves fellowship, being in constant fellowship where, you know, iron sharpens iron, where we are accountable to one another and can encourage one another uh, in, in this walk, this battle that we're in. It involves at least those three things and others that we don't have time to go into. And so every day we must make it our aim to fulfill God's original purpose in saving us to be like Him. We must be different. We must live differently from the world because of how God in Christ has changed us. You know, we should be able to relate to John Newton, the writer of Amazing Grace, who said this, I am not what I ought to be. I am not what I want to be. I am not what I hope to be in another world. But still, I am not what I used to be. And by the grace of God, I am what I am. Amen.
0: On behalf of Pastor Jim Jarrett and everyone at Calvary Bible Church of Palisadro, we hope and pray this study will help you continue growing in the Word. If you've been blessed by today's message, or if you have any questions or comments, we'd love to hear from you. You can call us at 530-547-4400. Again, 530-547-4400. Or write to us at PO Box 837 palisadro california 96073 you can also email us through the church website at calvarybiblepc.org calvarybiblepc.org thank you for listening and may god richly bless you it's your love.